0: I'd ask if you could please stand with me in reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. Again, this is our last week where we're focusing on the gifts of the Holy, of the Holy Spirit, and specifically, uh, this morning again we're going t- we're to be talking about the gift giver. So I'll ask if you could please turn your Bible to uh, to John chapter fifteen, verse twenty six, and we we'll be looking at John fifteen twenty six to sixteen fifteen. John fifteen twenty six to sixteen fifteen. But when the helper comes who I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me where you're going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. what is mine, and declare it to you. This is the word of our Lord. May he write eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray. Great and triune God, we marvel at your glory. And that we have the privilege to behold your glory as we see you in your word. And as we consider the Holy Spirit this morning, we believe in the Holy Spirit who is able, mighty and powerful to bear witness of the truth, to convict the world of sin and to guide us into truth. We rejoice in this great and glorious gift of your Holy Spirit that you have given to us, Lord Jesus. Your Holy Spirit who points us back to you. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would Point our hearts to Jesus today and this day and forevermore. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will empower us, Lord, to proclaim Christ, to bear witness to Christ, that you would use us to help us to convict others of sin through your Spirit and also that you would guide us into your truth so that your church is built up in the truth, so that your church is built up in love. cause the gifts that come to us through the Holy Spirit, our greatest gift, to manifest themselves in this body for your glory and for the building of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. When I was a boy... I loved stories about people stranded on desert islands. Robinson Crusoe and Swiss Family Robinson and Treasure Island, Danger Island, and even Gilligan's Island captivated my imagination. I was inspired by the the fight for survival against the odds and perseverance in seeking rescue. The sense of adventure still inspires movies like, like Castaway and and television programs like Lost. As we can see in these, in these programs, life on a desert island is no bed of roses. Stranded in a place that, that tourists would spend lots of money to visit today, castaways faced pirates and cannibals. They had to struggle for the basic amenities of life. When they weren't just trying to survive, they were consumed with seeking rescue. But imagine yourself stranded on such an island. You've you've been there for three years. And although the beaches are beautiful and the climate is perfect, food and water are hard to come by. The island is also inhabited by cannibals and roving pirates frequent the island. At any time, either could attack. You you miss your family and the comforts of home. There's no electricity and no running water, coconuts, Fish and goat milk are your only food. But thankfully, you're not alone. With you are several of your closest friends. And the adversity that you've all faced together has grown you together. You've struggled side by side. You've fought side by side. You've survived side by side. And your leader has exhibited selfless love again and again and has called you to do the same. He has taught you such amazing things and done so in such a way that makes you feel like you've never known the truth before. And amazingly, his, his friendship makes the, the deprivation actually enjoyable. You would be happy to be with him under far worse conditions. You'd gladly give up any creature comforts to be by his side. Then the day comes that he tells you that there's a boat coming and he's leaving. He's going home. I just imagine your, your joy. You think, we're rescued. We get to leave. We're getting out of this place. But then he breaks it to you. On this boat, there's only room for one. He's leaving without you. And your joy immediately leads to heartbreak. Heartbreak. In one moment, you've gone from absolute euphoria to the depths of despair. Then he explains to you, he has to leave in order for you to be rescued. He's leaving, but he's going to come back. And when he returns, he's going to take you home to be with him. Now there's a real mix of emotion taking place. Because on the the one hand, you rejoice that he's going home and, and that he's going to come back to take you with him. But on the other hand, you know that you're going to miss him terribly. But he tells you that there's more. He must leave you, but he's going to leave you with gifts that will help you. Not just to survive, but to thrive until his return. Now this is a a small and, and of course very limited picture of what is taking place in our passage this morning. Jesus and his disciples are at the Last Supper. Now the news for the disciples seemed very grim One of them is going to betray Jesus. Another of them is going to deny him. But worst of all is the departure of Jesus. And the leader that's departing is is not just a, a brave leader and a good guy. He's Jesus Christ. Truly God and truly man. And he isn't leaving on a boat. He's leaving on a cross. He's about to die. He's going to suffer and to die for their sins. But he tells him that that departure is only going to be for a brief time. He's only going to be dead for three days and three nights. And then only 40 days, then 40 days later, he's going to be leaving again. And that departure would be for a whole lot longer. And it's that departure that we're going to be discussing next week as we begin our study of the book of Acts. But there's good news in all of this. Jesus told them in John 14, 1 to 3, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If that were not so, would I have, would I have told you? Would that not, were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare, prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus wasn't deserting them. He was going to prepare a place for them. And he promised to come back for them. He didn't tell them when, but he promised that he would be back. And in the meantime, what did Jesus want them to do while, he waited, while they waited? Well, the one thing, one thing that they were to do was to love one another as he had commanded them to do in, in chapter 15, verses 12 to 17. But our passage this morning tells us three more specific things that the disciples were to do while they waited. They were to bear witness of him. They were to bear witness of his sin and judgment. They were, to bear, they were to bear witness of the truth. And they were to convict people of sin. And it's these things that we're going to be seeing the apostles do in the book of Acts. What are either proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. How, how would they do that? How could they possibly do that? How could they fulfill their mission in light of the opposition that they're going to face? Jesus has already told them how in, in chapter 15, verses four to 10, abide in him. Verse four, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in me, neither, and vine, rather, neither can you unless you abide in me. So Jesus is telling them to abide in him, but Jesus is leaving. How can they abide in him if he isn't there? They felt helpless without him, especially after he's just told them in in chapter 15, verses 18 to 25, that the world was going to hate them and persecute them. Now, Now, these men were not stranded on a desert island. They were stranded in the wicked world. Their enemies were not just pirates and cannibals. Their enemies were their own countrymen and their religious leaders. Their enemies were the devil and his hordes. So how could they possibly fulfill this mission under such opposition? They could only fulfill their mission through the gift that he was about to give them. Now Jesus has already told them what the gift is or rather who the gift is. He had said in, in chapter 14, 16, and 17 that, that he would ask the Father and that he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. God is going to give them another helper to be with the disciples forever. He has dwelt with them and he would dwell in them. And so in our passage this morning, in, in Chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus now reiterates it. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, people would generally think maybe you even thought this as we were preparing, as you saw the title for the sermon, you thought maybe the, the, the gift giver is the Holy Spirit. But the gift, the gift giver is God the Father and God the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the gift. Just, just pay careful attention to the Trinitarian nature of verse 26. Again, I'll read it to you. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father and is sent by the Son, bears witness about the Son for the glory of God. So all three members of the Trinity are involved in the work of bringing glory to God through the Son. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, as the Nicene Constantinople Creed of 381 says, And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. So again, the gift is the Holy Spirit. Spirit. In the the midst of the bad news, there is good news. There is great news. There is hope. There is glorious hope. Over the past several weeks, we've been talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But again, the real gift is the Holy Spirit himself. He is the one who empowers all of the other gifts that we've been looking at. The offices of, of apostle and prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. The serving gifts of leadership, mercy, administration, and faith. The word gifts of of wisdom and knowledge and discernment. The sign gifts of prophecy and tongues and interpretation and miracles. All of them are empowered by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, as we'll look at in, in Acts 2, the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to all believers to help them to build the church up in love for the glory of God. But in many churches, a focus on the gifts has led to a focus on the Holy Spirit. Now in one sense, this isn't wrong. It's not wrong to focus on the Holy Spirit because he is a member of the Trinity. He is God. However, in our day, some of the church focus an inordinate amount of attention on the gifts and on the Holy Spirit and attribute some very unbiblical behavior to him. While others, in reaction to those errors and excesses, react too strongly by ignoring him altogether. May we never be like spoiled kids who receive a gift from their parents and show no appreciation, no thankfulness, no love to their parents. May we never enjoy the gift while ignoring the giver. Jesus does not do that and we must not either. Jesus teaches his apostles directly about the Holy Spirit, telling the disciples the Holy Spirit's role in bringing people to him. As R.C. Sproul explains, the Spirit never brings attention to himself, but always drives attention to Christ and to his accomplishment. And Christ, in turn, drives us to the Father. That's why there's a a whole lot more in the Scriptures about God the Father and God the Son than there is about God the Holy Spirit. He points people to Christ, not to himself. So Jesus is giving them, as he says in the ESV version of, of chapter 15, 26, the helper, the helper. So Jesus uses the same word, the helper, in In John 14, 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So you see there that specifically that that the Lord Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit as well. But there there are a few words that are translated with more variation in English Bibles than the word that Jesus uses here to describe the Holy Spirit. Again, he is the, the Helper in the ESV and the NASB. He's described as the comforter in the KJV, the advocate in the NAV, and the, the counselor in, in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. There is a raft of words used to describe this title of the Holy Spirit in his work. Now, comforter works because the Holy Spirit comforts his disciples in the midst of trials, especially this particular trial as they face the departure of their beloved Lord. Advocate works too. The Holy Spirit is also our advocate as he intercedes for us. That's a bit narrow for this context. Counselor works too as the Holy Spirit encourages and exhorts the disciples. So each of these words gives a sense of the role of the Holy Spirit, but I believe the word helper is the best translation here. In the original language, the word meant called alongside. It was primarily a legal term referring to a person who was called into help, summoned to give assistance. Now what could better describe the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the disciples than that of the helper, the one who was called alongside to help the disciples? Well, how does the Spirit help the disciples? Well, we know that the Holy Spirit plays a a vital role in our salvation from from regeneration and sanctification to glorification as he gives us the gift of repentance and faith and as he applies the finished work of Christ to us, as he changes us into the image of Christ and as the the seal of our inheritance, He, he grants us assurance that we truly belong to God. However, in this passage, Jesus reveals three other key ways that the Holy Spirit helps disciples. One, He helps disciples to become martyrs. We'll see that in, in verses uh, twenty-six to sixteen-four. Two, He helps disciples convict the world of sin in sixteen-fifteen to eleven. And three, He helps disciples to know and to walk in the truth in sixteen-twelve to fifteen. So the Holy Spirit, or God gives the Holy Spirit to help the apostles fulfill their mission as witnesses of the risen Christ. The Holy Spirit will give them the spiritual gifts they need to fulfill their mission to point people to Christ, the foundation of the church, and to to show unbelievers their need for Christ and to build up the body in the truth of God's word. So then one, the helper helps disciples become martyrs, 1526 to 16.4. Now, becoming a martyr might not seem like such a good thing. Not many among us would list becoming a martyr as our goal in life. The word martyr calls to mind the graphic depictions of torture and execution of Christians in Fox's Book of Martyrs or the, the sanitized versions in the kids' torchlighter series. But we need to consider the original meaning of the word martyr and the benefits of being a martyr. Again, John's, Jesus says in John 15, 26 and 27, when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning now the greek verb that is translated bear witness in verses 50, verses 26 and 27 is marturio which comes from the noun marturia that sound familiar although marturia came to refer to one who was killed for bearing witness or proclaiming christ the original meaning of marturia was simply one who bore witness. The the disciples will bear witness because they were with Jesus from the beginning. Verse 27. So the Holy Spirit bears witness, enabling disciples to bear witness. Again, the, the gift guides disciples to the giver. The gift helps disciples to guide others to the giver. Although the disciples were, were eyewitnesses to the historicity of Jesus' life, to, to what he said and, and what he did from the beginning of his ministry, Jesus here is primarily referring to, to bearing witness, to not, not as much to, to what he did and what he said, but to who he is. Bearing witness to who he is. They're witnesses of Jesus and of his glory. But they aren't just passive observers, they are participants in his glory, as those who have been saved by faith in him and his sacrifice for their sins. So in this sense, brothers and sisters, we are witnesses too, because, because we are witnesses of Christ and participants of Christ and his glory through salvation in his name. Remember that John wrote his gospel account about all that Jesus did, verse chapter 20, 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the point of John's gospel account. And this is what the disciples testified to that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the message of the gospel. But there's a cost. There's a cost for those who bear witness. The, the disciples would be kicked out of the synagogues because of their witness. It, they'd already seen that happening. But it's going to get worse. The apostles would be killed. Eleven out of the, t- the twelve apostles were, were martyred for their faith. Only John, who wrote this account, was, was, was not martyred and he was, it was exiled to, to Patmos. Patmos. The apostles would be killed and and shockingly, the murderers would think that they're actually serving God by killing his servants. But it would prove that they they did not know the father and that they did not know the son. It would prove that they hated the father and hated the son. Quite often, the, the worst enemies of God claim to serve him. Think of the Pharisees. Think of, of Saul of Tarsus persecuting the church in, in the name of, of God. And then in Acts 9, Jesus knocks him off his horse and, and declares to him in, in verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he replies, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so praise God, Saul is saved, and then and then really almost all of the, the rest. Apart from a couple of chapters, almost all of the rest of the book of Acts is talking about what the Apostle Paul does as now a Christian empowered through the Holy Spirit. For the purpose of laying the foundation of the church and building the church for the glory of Christ. But this vow treatment wasn't just for those first disciples. The the history of the church is a story of blood as persecution and martyrdom is the rule and peace the exception. Though we might not think so from our comfortable pews. I really think every Christian should read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Though it's probably going to be one of the most difficult things you ever read. Think of the, the Roman Catholic Church killing Christians in the Inquisitions or burning them at the stake for the refusal to take the Roman Catholic Mass. I think especially of William Tyndale, who was burned at the stake for translating the, the Bible into English. If you hold an English Bible in your hands, it, it is largely because of the Lord's work in and through William Tyndale. And he died for those efforts. When I consider how far much of the visible church in the West has drifted from Orthodox Christianity, I believe that the church is now headed in the same direction. Jesus warned the disciples that when these things took place they would remember what he told them and that they would not be offended, so that they wouldn't be offended at him and fall away. So that they would not be like the seeds sown on rocky ground who initially hear the word with joy and endure for a while until tribulation and persecution arise. On account of the word, they immediately fall away. Mark 4, 16 and 17. Now this did take place. The the hour did come. These disciples were, were, were killed just as their Lord was killed. We pray regularly for our brothers and sisters who are facing persecution today. While we sit here, thousands of Christians are languishing in prison cells some of them even being tortured at this very moment. while we sit here in comfort. And their crime is because they have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What would you do if, if gunmen were to burst through those doors right now? What if they commanded you to deny Christ and to leave the building immediately? I've often considered what I would do if if somebody commanded me to deny Christ at gunpoint. Or worse, if someone commanded me to deny Christ or said that they would harm someone I love. Were that to happen? Apart from the grace of God, I would deny my faith in the next breath. But thankfully, I'm not apart from the grace of God. Humanly speaking, I could never endure any persecution for my faith, let alone the death of a a loved one. None of us could. But that's just what the Holy Spirit is going to do. That's what Jesus is saying, that the Holy Spirit is going to help the disciples to become martyrs in both senses of the word. Martyrs in the sense that they're going to bear witness and martyrs in the sense that they're going to suffer for their faith. They'll bear witness of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if if that witness means their death, they'll remain faithful to the end in the power of the same Holy Spirit. True disciples remain faithful because God is faithful. They remain faithful because the Spirit is the seal of their inheritance. They remain faithful because, like the cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11, of whom the world was not worthy, those who sought a heavenly country, those who refused to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. We cannot do any of these, these things apart from the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we can take comfort in the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, helping us to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Two, the Helper helps disciples convict the world. 16, 5 to 11. So now Jesus reminds the disciples that he's leaving. He says in verse five, but now I'm going to him to whom who sent me, and none of you ask me where you're going. Now, of course, they did ask him where he was going. Back in 1336, Peter asked him. Now, Jesus means here that they weren't really concerned with with where he was going. They they didn't understand the blessing that it was for Jesus to go back to the Father. They were more concerned with their personal loss. We see this from from chapter 16, 6. As Jesus continued, "But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Their focus was on the fact that their Lord was leaving them." Well let me return again to my, my illustration of the desert island. There you are, stranded on the desert island, and your leader's leaving. And he's coming back for you. That's fantastic. but he's still leaving. But if you understood what his departure really meant, you'd be overjoyed with the fact that he's getting rescued. Even if it means that that for a time you aren't getting rescued. The disciples should have been ecstatic for Jesus. That he's going back to be with his father. That's why all of us who have, have lost loved ones in Christ are able to rejoice because they've been rescued. They're with Jesus in paradise. Now, after the resurrection of Jesus, the disciples understood so that after he ascended, they were able to return to Jerusalem with great joy. But at this point, they still didn't understand. So Jesus tells them another blessing for them that requires his departure. Verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For after I do not go away, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Just think about what Jesus is saying there. He's saying that the gift of the Holy Spirit is so good that it's even better than having me right here with you. Now I often wonder what it would have been like to to be with Jesus and to literally to to walk with Jesus and to to see what he was doing in in the world, to be a witness and to, to hear teaching directly from his mouth. Jesus is saying, I have something greater. You have something greater. You have the Holy Spirit. And again, as he said it in chapter 14, not just, just with you, but in you. Jesus is saying, this is even better than if I was there with you. It's an advantage for, for the disciples, for Jesus to leave so that they can receive the Holy Spirit. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of Joel 2.28. That God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh. Again, this is what's going to take place in in Pentecost. And Peter is going to preach on that very passage on Pentecost and saying that that is fulfilled in Pentecost. That the Holy Spirit is being poured out on all flesh. So to that point, the Holy Spirit was was given to to select people from specific specific times and purposes. The the prophets and, and certain... Kings and leaders prior to that point were, were given the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit came and went. Like with Samson or even King Saul. But now in the new covenant on Pentecost, all Christians are given the indwelling Spirit and he never leaves them. So the Son of God is leaving them, but he's, but God the Spirit is coming to them and will be in them. Again, John 14 17. In verse 8, Jesus says that the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he proceeds to explain what that means. Now, now these are difficult words to interpret, but it all hangs on, on the verb that, that's translated here, convict. And the King James renders renders it convince. Scripture always uses this word to describe showing someone their sin, most often with a call to repentance. So here the Holy Spirit convicts the world of three things, of sin and righteousness and judgment. But as as Herman Ritterboss explains, also included is the concept that the Holy Spirit helps the disciples in their ongoing witness concerning Jesus by betraying to them the true nature of the world, of Jesus' departure and of his victory over the world. So the helper convicts of sin. He empowers disciples and their witness, especially in the word of God. Right? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, the joints of marrow, of discerning the thoughts and attentions of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 Now, verses 9 to 11 are are difficult to interpret, but, but, but when I stand up here and proclaim the word of God, it is the spirit that lends power to that word so that it shows people their sin and their need of a savior. But here it's applied to the world, to those who do not believe. The worst sin in the world, the worst sin the world commits is its failure to put their faith in Jesus. So the Spirit helps convict of sin. The Spirit helps convict of righteousness. And I believe that's what Jesus has in mind in convicting the world, that it, it has no righteousness. Think about Isaiah 64, 6. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. So Jesus came to the world as light, but now he's departing, so the Holy Spirit will continue his witness. And I sort of kind of dreamed of what it would be like to, to hear the very words of Jesus directly. I do. You do whenever you read the Bible. And I was talking to a neighbor a couple days ago, and, and, and he said he's got a bunch of Bibles. And I said, you need to read those Bibles. And I said he said, well, I read the red letters. Like in some Bibles, the red letters are the, are, are the words of Jesus. But, but all the letters in the Bible, if, the, if it's the words of Jesus, then, then all the words should be read both senses. The color red and the verb red. The helper convicts of judgment. Now he's speaking here of the judgment to come, and and he cites the judgment of Satan, who is the ruler of this world. He stands condemned by the Holy Spirit. He's referred to in the theological dictionary of the New Testament as the advocate at the bar of God in heaven. The Holy Spirit is is our, our advocate before the bar, in the the court of God in heaven. Satan, though, is a liar, and he's the father of lies. His work is grounded on false accusations. However, as he himself is condemned, all false judgment will itself be judged by God's perfect standard. Have you ever been misjudged? How does it feel? Don't worry about it. All of those misjudgments will be rectified by Christ. And the only judgment that really matters is God's judgment of you, which, which, is, which is not even just not guilty. God's judgment of you is innocent. It's righteous. If, if you are declared righteous in the court of God, what relevance is the court of man? Now, so we see how the Holy Spirit empowers empowers believers to, to convict people of sin. Through the enablement of the Holy Spirit, you can talk to others about their sin, but it's not your job to convince them, let alone to convict them. The Holy Spirit does that. The, the Holy Spirit works through his word and you might be the conduit of his word. You might be the, the one who, who shares a scripture that the Holy Spirit uses to convict someone of their sin, but you don't need to strive to do it. Yes, you, you talk to them, but pray that the Holy Spirit will do the work in their heart. Again, specifically, or mainly here talking about the conviction of unbelievers, but it works for Christians too. Finally, the helper helps disciples to know truth. Chapter 16, verses Uh, 12 to 15. In verse 12, Jesus tells the disciples that he has many things to tell them, but they cannot bear them now. He's just about finished this lesson and they're about to leave for Gethsemane where suffering is going to begin. More teaching will have to wait until after the resurrection three days later. But but even after his ascension to the Father, even after Jesus departs, the Spirit will continue to guide them into all truth. As William Hendrickson explains, having spoken about the Spirit's work in the midst of the world, Jesus now proceeds to enlighten the minds of the disciples with respect to the Spirit's influence within the bosom of the church. He will empower those first disciples as they go around bearing witness for Christ and establishing the church. He will inspire those disciples who who write the Holy Scriptures as every word is directed by the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The helper guides them into the truth. John 16, 13. He guides them to Jesus, who is himself the epitome of truth. The word is about Jesus. He is the logos of God. The word has become flesh. John 1:14. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. The Holy Spirit will help glorify Jesus for he will take what Jesus has said and will declare it to them. John 16, 14. He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance what I have said to you. John 14, 26. Again, this is all the words of the word of God, not just the red ones. The Holy Spirit ultimately points to Jesus. He does not seek glory for himself, but he seeks glory for Jesus. But just as Jesus did not speak on his own authority, but spoke what he'd heard from the Father, John 12, 49, the Helper does not speak of his own authority. He takes what Jesus has said and and declares it to them. He tells them what is to come. Now, because the context is the words of Christ, I, I don't believe this is referring solely to prophecy, but as he guides them into the understanding of the implications of all of the life and the ministry of Christ. But this isn't true just for those first disciples. It's true for all disciples of all ages. The Spirit guides us into truth. So the Holy Spirit helps us to to grow in correct doctrine as part of our sanctification. Your your sanctification is not just in growth in living a holy life. It's growth in holy doctrine. He takes the words of Jesus and discloses it to us. He, He applies the words of Jesus to our hearts. When you're being distracted, the Holy Spirit brings you back to the words of Christ, back to the gospel. It's hard to to, to talk to others. But he helps us to do that too. He helps us to, to lovingly point others to the truth of God's word and to the gospel. Brothers and sisters, don't be practical atheists trying to do what Jesus commands you to do in your own strength. You can see how the Holy Spirit has empowered the ministry of the apostles, the the first disciples, and how he empowered gifts for the establishment of the church so that the church will grow in love and grow in, in, in depth and in breadth. Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to the church to empower gifts in the church, to lay the foundation of the church and to build up the church in love. So through those first disciples, the Holy Spirit bore witness for Jesus, convicted the world of sin and led people to the truth. Next week, we're going to begin our study of Acts where we'll see these things begin to take place. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit, Jesus builds up his church. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is still building his church. Brothers and sisters, you are part of that. You are empowered by the same Holy Spirit who empowered the apostles. You have been given gifts that are vital to the church to cause the church to grow in depth and in breadth, to help the church to be built up in love. Let's pray together. great and glorious God. We thank you for the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God the Son who took on human flesh and lived in this wicked world. Though he was in the world, he was unstained by the world. He fully obeyed all of the righteous commandments of God, but died as a sin-bearer, as he bore the sins of his people, as he suffered on the cross and died for our sins, as he was raised on the third day victorious over sin and death and hell, how that victory has been won for us and applied to us through the power of the Holy Spirit who has regenerated our hearts and applied the work of Christ to us, who has pointed us to Christ, who has convicted us of our sin, has caused us to be born again and helped us to grow in the truth. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working out this great and glorious salvation whom we have received, that we have received in Christ through the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us as your people, those who are indwelt with your Holy Spirit, to walk in step with the Holy Spirit through the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to bear witness of Christ. Help us to talk to people about sin and its consequences, but of the, the Savior, Jesus Christ, who died so that they might live Help us, Lord, to be grounded and built up in the truth. Help this church to build itself up in love through the gifts that you have given to us. Lord Jesus, through the greatest gift we have received as part of our salvation, the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Lord, may all that we do in the operation of these gifts redound back to you for the glory of your name and for the glory of the Father. We pray this all in your holy name. Amen.